0: My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. Now, y'all might have heard rumors about the Armada happening soon. Well, we'll be leaving a little earlier. We're going to be dropped into France dressed as civilians. Once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're going to be doing one thing and one thing only killing nazis
1: yes where do i sign up let's do it and welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast. The podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, as always, Dr. Alex Swan. And today we have a bit of a fun one. A little loose on the psych concepts that we sort of name in the show. But honestly, this one feels so right as far as just talking about the portrayal of psychology that gets all up in your head, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? How are we going to do this? This is both a crazy movie, but also a movie that makes you think. At least I think so. There's a lot of fun film studies going on in this one. The film that we are talking about is Quentin Tarantino's 2009 film, *Inglorious Bastards. It's kind of like a Western during World War II. He likes his spaghetti westerns, or his spaghetti western type movies, doesn't he? He also has a lot of other things he does throughout his films. You see Diane Kruger's foot. Yeah, I thought I'd get that right out in front here. Quentin Tarantino, when he writes and directs his movies, makes sure to get women's feet in there. And it's always women's feet. It's it's nobody else's feet. It's women's feet. Okay. So, yeah, getting right out there. He's, uh, and, and, and not shaming or anything like that, I just, you know, get that right out there, you're gonna see one. That's it. That's all I mean. A lot of great characters in this movie played by wonderful people. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, Brad Pitt is the lead in the movie. He plays Lieutenant Aldo Rain. I believe he is from Tennessee. And um, one of the great, Accents that he's ever put on for a role, in my opinion, of course. Uh, next we have Diane Kruger. Uh, she is of German descent and plays a uh, famous German movie star. I don't know if it was too hard for her to do at this point. Thought <laughs> that, that's that pretty pretty on the nose. Who, Bridget von Hammersmark. Such a name, though. I don't think that's a real like German last name, but. I guess it could be. Eli Roth, before he started um, fiddling around with his own crazy movies, plays Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, the Bear Jew, as he is named by uh, really scared German soldiers. Christoph Waltz. Oh, I got to tell you, Christoph Waltz... um, just the my favorite character of his in anything that he's done but also just my favorite character in this movie he is phenomenal isn't he like i don't know anyone who looks at that performance and goes nah it's middling you know derivative op- no i don't i don't I don't agree with you. If that's the case, Uh, Melanie uh, Laurent is also in the movie. She plays a lovely, uh, lovely character named Shoshana, but also um, a she plays sort of has two names. um, But uh, Mimiu is the fake last name that she assumes when she gets into Paris. Uh, Michael Fassbender also in the movie has a great. A dual nationality role for himself because he is both British and German, and so he played them those two roles wonderfully daniel bruhl, b j. Novak, till Schweiger, a very big german movie star, very big German movie star. I think perhaps my favorite of like the weird random roles that you see throughout this movie is Mike Myers as a general um with hanging out with uh Winston Churchill <laughs> like just randomly playing a British guy just because he played a British guy in Austin Powers. I'm pretty sure that's the only reason why he's doing this role so good, so good. Anyways, uh, just a, br- a brief plot of this and then we'll jump into uh our segment with the guest host. So, uh there is a group of Uh, American soldiers under Lieutenant Aldo Rain who are called the Bastards who are airdropped into uh, enemy France, uh, German-occupied France, just outside of Paris, and their job is to kill Nazis. As Aldo Rain says, Nazis. Okay? So uh, what's special about this group? Well, it's a group of American soldiers who have one thing in common? They are all Jewish. So this is a Jewish group, and they cap they they get uh, Til Schweiger to join them, a uh, a German defector. Bridget von Hammerschmark, played by Dan Kruger, is also a defector, uh, enemy spy trying to get uh, get in close with Goebbels, uh, the propaganda minister at the time. So their job is to. Kill as many Nazis as possible. Well, they get word of this uh showing at a Paris movie theater, and they're gonna see if they could go blow up some Joseph Goebbels. Oh. They get an added benefit of a late edition. Hitler will be there. This theater is run by in secret Shoshana Dreyfus whom Christoph Waltz's character has been long searching for ever since a few years prior in the war. He murdered her family, but she got away. I hope that makes sense. There's a bunch of intertwining stories that all come together at the end, much like most of Quentin Tarantino's movies, sort of the split ends of a rope coming entwined at the very top or if you want to think about it, uh, untwined at the top and taut at the at the bottom. This is kind of his storytelling trope. Not He's not the only one who tells stories like this, interweaving stories that all meet at the end, but he is pretty famous for it because most of his movies follow this. Not all of them. Some of the older movies don't really do that. They have a lot of flashback stuff going on, like Reservoir Dogs has flashbacks. But Pulp Fiction is a bunch of interweaving stories. Uh, this is Hateful Eight is a bunch of interweaving stories. So you can kind of tell that this is going to follow that. Still great, though. Still really great. All right, let's get into this awesome movie. Yep, I, it is perhaps in my top 20. Awesome movie. Let's jump into it with our guest. My guest host today is a friend of the show, Jason Spiegelman. Jason, how are things and uh, what are you looking forward to in the coming uh, school semester? Hi, Alex. Uh, it's nice to be back with you. Things are
2: good. Um, our college here in Baltimore, where I teach, the community college of Baltimore County, like a lot of schools, are attendance our enrollment is starting to pick up and we're uh, looking forward to a nice fall semester and um i have no complaints i'm looking forward to being back in the classroom i love my summers off but i'm ready to
1: get back to teaching excellent uh anything else going on um not a whole lot um no no (laughs) no
2: just working on my working on my writing projects and uh preparing
1: my syllabi and that's about it Okay, I'll be the one to say it then. So, also also, you were recently awarded the Wayne White and Teaching Excellent Award, and of course I have to say it because I am your friend and uh I live to embarrass you live and love to embarrass you but this was a, this award was awarded by our friends at the society for the teaching of psychology a, an organization we talk a lot about on this show STP it's awarded to the best of the best of that year faculty member from a two year or community college for all the things they do for students hard work and demonstrable teaching Prowess. Yeah, that's right. Prowess. Live with that word. Prowess. You are going to receive this award at ACT, the annual conference on teaching that's put on by STP this October. And, you know, you already know this, but listener, I'm going to be there to tearfully witness his receipt of this award. Congratulations, Jason.
2: I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. It is um, quite an honor. And it's funny because when you find out about something like this, the first thing you think to yourself is they made some kind of mistake. But, they surely did. Um, they surely did. But you know, it's, uh, it's nothing like this is ever won without an awful lot of people standing behind you and lifting you up on their shoulders. And you are one of them. And I appreciate you and all the people who have helped me get to this auspicious Occasion, I'm very excited to get the award in Pittsburgh, the city of my birth. So I'll get to go back and see family and friends there as well. So I look forward to seeing you and so many others in October.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That it's you get this award in your hometown. That's pretty cool. That yeah, is pretty yeah. cool. Looking
2: forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. Thank you for mentioning it. I'm very humbled and honored by it.
1: You bet, man. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. You know how this goes. If Dear listener, you are not familiar with Jason. As he said, he teaches at the Community College of Baltimore County um, out there in Baltimore, Maryland. And he is the Psych 101 Fiend. That's right. Fiend. So today we, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, we are talking about Inglorious Bastards. A film, Jason, you felt very strongly about when we were talking about which movie to discuss in our uh, reuniting. Tell us a little bit about why you felt so strongly. Well, when we were having our conversation, we
2: we actually kicked around a, a few different Tarantino movies. Um, sure. And the next time you ask me, it's probably going to be Pulp Fiction or <laughs> Kill Bill or uh, If I Can... Barrett Django Unchanged. He, he's just such a genius. Um, Tarantino, and the, you think Tarantino's Tarantino? A genius? Yes, okay. Well, Django also. Django also. Um, okay, fair enough. The you know the the cinematic techniques that he uses are well beyond my comprehension, but just glorious. And there was there was so much in this film that really. S- Struck me that when I saw it back when it was in the theaters, you know, a a good dozen years ago, um, some of my reactions to the scenes the first time I saw it have really stuck with me over the years. And as I have assigned it to students, I've had them report on exactly those same moments and the same kinds of feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot that pulls us as human beings, as psychological creatures, in different directions when you watch this movie. And I think that's some of what we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, and um I think what might be a thing to bear repeating uh as I said in the intro we are probably going to discuss this movie from a, just a broad psychological perspective as opposed to some of the other episodes in uh on that have appeared on the show and will appear on the show where we like specifically chunk out the vocabulary and psychological concepts you would find in a classroom. I think this movie does, uh, is better served by, um, just talking about the psychology of the filmmaking process. I like throwing these in here. So when you said the inglorious bastards, I first had a thought of, okay, what are the psych concepts without having watched it in, in, in a while. I've, Probably seen it a handful of times, or at least the majority of it a handful of times. I don't know if I've um, always watched it through. But I was thinking, hmm, what are the site concepts in this? Watched it again, I'm like, well, I'm not going to really try to say, oh, that's this bias or that's that concept. Like we do on some episodes, I, I thought this one might be best served by just talking about moments and the psychology of those moments. And since you uh, regard Tarantino so highly, Jason, I think um, as a as a burgeoning film student myself, um, you know, reading textbooks on film studies and filmmaking recently, I like adding little flares of this to the show, and so we'll probably spend a little bit more time doing that in this episode. Just, just because there's no like, hey, this is confirmation bias. Let's talk about confirmation bias. More like, why do people have the reactions that they have for this movie? Um, how did Tarantino achieve some of his uh, artistic goals? That kind of thing. And so, to that end. Jason, I think what we can do is take the movie chronologically. Uh, so start to end and talk about important things that occur along the way. How does that sound to you?
2: Well, we'll do our best. I think we're probably going to bounce back and forth a little bit. But generally, starting at the start and working our way toward the end is is the right approach. Yeah, to follow the plot a little bit. And you know what's interesting is this is one of this is one of the Tarantino movies where he doesn't do that sort of temporal bouncing like he does in Pulp Fiction, where all of the tentacles of the movie sort of collapse together at the very end. This one is very chronological, and so it makes sense to go through it in that direction.
1: Um, I, I disagree with your characterization on that. I think this is a frayed rope uh, with a knot at the end. Because it's different storylines all converging at at one time, the other storylines don't know that they're occurring. The only jump in linear time is just because we need to follow the progression of the war. But I think these are 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 the same sort of tentacle, as you say, setup um, to all converge at the very very end, right? The final act is when they all come together. Well, I don't know. I, I just again, like I, I, Hateful I, Aid, I, I, Pulp Fiction. I, I,
2: I, I take your point at the the different storylines converging. But when you talk about sort of the temporal sequencing, I think back again to one of my absolute favorite movies, Pulp Fiction, which starts at the end in the diner scene and then ends at the end in the diner scene.
1: So we have sort of the shifting around there. But oh, OK, we'll
2: we can we can agree to
1: disagree. Yeah, I think so, because I think that's a bit of a stretch as far as temporality goes. A lot of a lot of filmmakers like to start at the end and then go like, how did we get here? (laughs) Gotcha. So let's start at the beginning. So my favorite character in this whole movie is Christoph Waltz. And as Hans Landa, Colonel Hans Landa of the Schutzstaffel, right? The SS Terrifying, yet a smaller man. He's not a a typical German as described by Hitler of the Aryan race, right? He's a very small person and yet terrifying, but disarming. And so in this first scene, we get all of that all rolled into one where he follows up on a search for Jews having recently been handed the um, Jew Hunter moniker by the local French and he's researching a f- dairy farm uh, being very terrifying with a glass of milk I've never felt so terrified with milk in a scene before
3: Monsieur Are you aware of the nickname the people of France have given me? I have no interest in such things. But you're aware of what they call me? I'm aware. What are you aware of? call you the joint? Precisely. I understand your trepidation in repeating it. Heydrich apparently hates the moniker the good people of Prague have bestowed on him. Actually, why, he would hate the name the hangman's baffling to me. It would appear he's done everything in his power to earn it. I, on the other hand, love my unofficial title, precisely because I've earned it. The feature that makes me such an effective hunter of the Jews is, as opposed to most German soldiers, I can think like a Jew, where they can only think like a German. (laughs) More precisely, a German soldier. (laughs) Now, if one were to determine what attribute the German people share with a beast, it would be the cunning and the predatory instinct of a hawk. But if one were to determine what attributes the Jews share with the beast, it would be that of the rat. The Führer and Goebbels propaganda have said pretty much the same thing. But where our conclusions differ is I don't consider the comparison an insult. But consider for a moment the world a rat lives in. It's a hostile world, indeed. If a rat were to scamper through your front door right now, would you greet it with hostility? I suppose I would. Has a rat ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them?
0: Rats spread diseases to bite people.
3: Rats were the cause of the bubonic plague, but that's some time ago. I propose to you any disease a rat could spread, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Why? Yet, I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels that you do with rats, do you? No. Yet, they're both rodents, are they not? And except for the tail, they even rather look alike, don't they? It's an interesting thought, Herr However interesting as the thought may be, it makes not one bit of difference to how you feel. If a rat were to walk in here right now, as I'm talking... Would you greet it with a source of your delicious milk? Probably not. Hmm. I didn't think so. You don't like them. You don't really know why you don't like them. All you know is you find them repulsive. Consequently, a German soldier conducts a search of a house suspected of hiding Jews. Where does the hawk look? He looks in the barn, he looks in the attic, he looks in a cellar, he looks everywhere he would hide. for there's so many places it wouldn't have occurred to a hawk to hide. However, the reason the has brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. Because I'm aware of what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once they abandon dignity
1: and he's interrogating this farmer who has three daughters and looking for a family of Jews named the Dreyfuses the Dreyfuses exactly so jason i want to get your thoughts first what struck you about this scene
2: what is you know, there, there's there's so much. Of course, there's the shifting of the uh, language um, when he knows that the Dreyfuses who are under the floorboards do not speak English, and we'll get to that. There is the, um, the 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 clear reference to the fact that from from the first sixty seconds when we see uh, uh, Monsieur Lapadite outside and he sees Landa and his men driving up he already knows what's happening there 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 is no question and the rest of the scene up until the moment where um the jew hunter reveals his agenda is is nothing more than um what's the right word it's mockery it's it's popcorn until we get to the it's it's the appetizer right um yeah What strikes me about the scene, of course, is also the end, Um, the absence of closure. We see Shoshana Dreyfus running away, and Landa goes "Au revoir, Shoshana." Right? Yeah, he says it in such a sing-songy way, too. Right? Right. Right? He's mocking her as he's looking at her through the through the sight of the gun, but he doesn't shoot. We don't know what happens to Padit and his daughters. No. And that is, that is a very Tarantinesque kind of approach to leave the scene unfinished and let us wonder. And if you, uh, I haven't seen any interviews with Tarantino about this scene in particular. I'm sure they exist. And if you ask him, did the Lepadites survive? I sort of suspect he wouldn't answer the question.
1: No, I don't think he would either. And I think it's safe to assume. That his orders were very clear. Um, obviously, find the Dreyfuses and 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 them, but also do not give uh, favor to anyone harboring them. Right, right. And I think that was during- pretty clear during the war. Yes, but then during his interrogation,
2: he says, "If you make my job easy." Right. If you tell me what I need to know and don't make me work harder, I will. Your reward will be that we will never disturb you again. And I the think question would just is, blown smoke. Well, I, I do too. But again, Tarantino lets us wonder. Right. And he's not going to tell us what
1: happened. Right. Um. And so what I. What I pulled from this is the language thing, as you mentioned. That's the that was, when I first saw this scene back in 2009, I was like, "Hmm, they must be switching to English for the audience because it's the first scene of the movie." And you're like, "As if Tarantino is going to make us read subtitles the entire time?" Of course, which he as is. it turns out, he did. <laughs> yeah, of course he does. Um, I mean that's not only true to what's going on in the world at the time as, as if they're speaking English normally randomly in German occupied France. Like, no, they're not. Uh, so I was like, Oh, okay. So they're going to like do this in movie switcherino. And they're just going to be like, ah, let's talk about, let's talk in English. But of course it was just a ruse because he, he took a guess. I imagine he took a guess that um, the rural families in France probably only knew French. And maybe a little German, but maybe not even that. And so he took a guess that Petite knew English well enough to have a conversation that would not be interpreted by, um, by the drivers hiding under the floorboard. But... I counter, how do you not get the English out of that? There's so many French loan words. How do you not get that something is going to happen? I don't know. I, I was like, yeah, this makes sense, but also doesn't also doesn't make sense. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's interesting how you said
2: sort of the movie-esque. We're just suddenly going to switch to English. Um, it reminds me of every sort of Soviet Tom Clancy spy thriller out there. They always start, you know, Nuporuski, right? They And eventually they switch to Russian-affected English for us so that we don't have to read the whole movie. Yeah. But it is interesting that the vast majority of this movie was in German and in French, and so we did have to read <laughs> the majority of the movie. Um, and if you don't speak any of those two languages, then it becomes even more of a challenge.
1: It's gr- it's honestly great though because I'm learning I'm learning German. I'm doing it slowly, but and I'm doing it on my time. But I'm learning German, and so it was fun to revisit a movie that I knew was all that had a lot of German and pretty pretty decent subtitles. I remember that the subtitles were sort of stylized in many ways, um, especially the, the, the deliberate uh, subtitles. So they're part of the movie. And so that was great. That was fun. Um, and then like, just because Tarantino likes to write sharp dialogue, it was easy to follow people speaking in German, um, and like sort of connect it to the, the subtitles. Because of how sharp and short they all spoke, like they—I mean—it's a sentence. Period. Another sentence. Period. Another person speaks. Sentence. Period. Another person speaks. Period. You know, it's—it was—it uh, it, was—it was so easy to follow, and it was so fun to be able to do that. I wasn't as much as fan as French parts, but you know. And then, of course,
2: the the best part of all of this is that Christoph Waltz speaks fluently in German,
1: French, Italian, and English. Yes. So,
2: you know, perfect.
1: Yeah. So he does that role, and then the guy who plays uh, La Petite, you know, be, being a um, French actor who also speaks English, really great. Michael Fassbender speaks fluent German because he is mm-hmm. a both German and. Um, English uh, background. So it was like funny. Tarantino cast this movie really well because he Mm -hmm. found people that sort of fit the written word that he had created. Maybe he was writing for specific people. I don't know. But like he found people that just work so well.
2: I did a little reading um, as I'm sure anybody would go to IMDB and uh, Michael Fassbender is it. How you pronounce his name? Fassbinder? Fassbender? Fassbender. What? Um, he um, had to actually work with a German vocal coach to learn how to be somebody who spoke English Excuse me, as somebody who learned to speak German as if he was an English person, English speaking person trying to pretend to be German and get rid of a German accent Yeah, because his native German accent was too authentic. I right. thought that's classic. That would be like, you know, me growing up in Pittsburgh trying to learn how to speak with a Louisiana accent, but sound like I was coming from Chicago trying to pretend to be in the bayou. I mean, wow. Right.
1: I was amazing. Amazing. Right. Like, so cool well stuff. done. So well done. And of course, Diane Kruger, a German mm-hmm. actress in her own right, doesn't mm-hmm. um, have that strong of a German accent in her other work when she plays somebody with a German background, but an American. So most notably, I think, would be her national treasure Character, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. hear some of the accent in there, but she's done so well in getting an American accent to come out of the thick German, and then she has to put it back on, right, to right. speak English in this movie. I, it's just it's great.
2: And then, then the forgive the French, the pièce de résistance is when Major Hellstrom turns around and he uses the incorrect accent that does not uh, apply well to a particular region of German to identify Hickox as not who he says he is yeah. in the bar scene that we'll get to later. Yeah. Very cool stuff when it comes to the linguistic, um, manipulations. Speaking of, uh, bringing it back to the idea of closure, right? Where we don't know if the Lepadites, um, survive. And I would argue that they probably do not. Um, Something that I do think is interesting in in another interview that I saw with Tarantino, he leaves us with a little bit of non-closure, an absence of closure, just in the title of the movie. The Inglorious Bastards, spelled B-A-S-T-E-R-D-S, as opposed to the correct spelling of the word.
1: I have a headcanon for that. Uh, You have a? I have a headcanon for that. I don't know what a headcanon is. This is my own canon. You need to go 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 read up what uh uh headcanon means no this is this is my own canon uh reason for bastards i don't think aldo ray knows how to spell bastards okay yeah that's it that makes perfect sense
2: he's he's not a i mean he's he's bright in his own way but certainly not book smart (laughs) And when Tarantino was asked about this, he looked at the interview right in the face and said, I'm not going to tell you, and I will never tell anyone why it is misspelled. Your hypothesis is as good as any. That's why it's um, called Canon. There you go. I wondered if it was just because he wanted to distinguish it from the 1978 version of the film, which did spell it correctly. Mm, which could be. I, don't, I don't love that hypothesis, but I think yours makes an awful lot of sense since, you know, Aldo Rain is responsible for putting together the bastards.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, so maybe he just wanted to put in some emphasis on turds. <laughs> I'll let you have that one. <laughs> I mean, then you would say, well, why didn't he spell it uh T-U-R-D-S? And to that, dear listener, I don't have an answer for you. I just think he just can't spell. And so the way he pronounces words is funny. Because he's from Tennessee. And so he just probably thinks that's how you spell bastards. I don't know. Um, now, Quentin Tarantino saying that to an interviewer is pretty annoying, but, because he is a very annoying human being, but I get, I, I, fine, I get it, I get it, and I don't like it, and and so I'll believe my headcanon until, until somebody says, (laughs) I shouldn't. I'm okay with that. Okay. So, let's bring it back to Hans Landa, okay? So-called the Jew Hunter, doesn't really like the name. But he knows that he earns it, right? He knows that he has earned it. And so, he's kind of a creepy dude. And we were debating a little bit before, I don't want to get too much into it, but we were debating, uh, Jason and I, uh, about um, Landa's true intentions in the movie. And... uh, one of those true intentions, in my view, after the events of uh, letting Shoshana, Shoshana uh, escape is he wants to defect and everything that he does in the second and third acts of the movie all work toward defecting. He sees the writing on the wall in 1944, and that's why he does the things that he does. But that doesn't make him any less sociopathic, right? Right. So tell uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So it's it's
2: it's an interesting character in terms of if we were going to look through a lens of sort of psychopathology, is he sociopathic? Is he, you know, uh, afflicted with antisocial personality <laughs> disorder? Uh, it's you know, it would seem to be a slam dunk, right? He's um, without empathy. Right and he is a cold-blooded killer if he doesn't pull the trigger he orders the trigger pulled he is extremely charming in a way that just lets him climb right up the ranks of the of the inner circle of the third Reich um, and yet he talks about the fact that he doesn't have anything particularly hateful in him against Jews other than doesn't like them but doesn't hate them, sees them as rats, but he says, you know, you you feel a certain way about a rat, and you don't know why you feel that way. He doesn't pull the trigger on this little girl running across the field, um, and yet at the end, he, you know, he, he would seem to be the hero at least on some level. He is going to single handedly end the war by allowing Hitler to get blown away. You know, was this him all along? Who is this man? I don't know.
1: He is a, an enigma. I, I, like I said, my favorite character in this movie because he just, he gets under your skin. And one of the filmmaking techniques that he uses to add to that anxiety in... um in a scene with Hans Landa and uh Shoshana as Mademoiselle Mimiu um when she uh, assumes an identity and has a cinema in Paris there's this great scene that or the great filmmaking technique that Quentin Tarantino uses where he keeps the focus on Shoshana and they're speaking German, and we don't know whether or not Shoshana understands German. We know she speaks French, but we don't know if she understands German. There's no indication in in any of her uh, interactions with uh, Germans in the movie that she understands German beyond a few words. Here and there. Except
2: when she's up on her ladder outside of her cinema and Major Hellstrom gets out of the car and he orders her in German to get her ass down off of the ladder and she drops her rag and immediately comes down the ladder. So there is a little bit of evidence there.
1: Uh, I don't know if that necessarily reflects whether she not or not. She knows German, but that she knows some words that get her ass out the way or to some place who knows? Um, you know, as sort of like a a, a a cattle dog to a herd, right? Right. So the this this the camera stays tight on her as she's getting she gets more and more agitated, not knowing or potentially listening to what they're saying, but not really knowing that she can escape or not escape or. Uh, if she's going to get found out, if they know who she is. And we are just sucked in to that situation with her. And it's, it's phenomenal.
2: There's a beautiful moment in that scene. It's about a five second pause when Landa says, there was something else I wanted to ask you. And he stares at her and his face changes to the scary sort of ghoulish glare of his And we're waiting for him to say, aren't you the girl I didn't kill? And he says, oh, never mind, must not have been important.
1: (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful filmmaking. He knew it, obviously. We both know that. He knew 100% that that was Shoshana Dreyfus. You don't agree with me, Jason? You, You and I had a conversation
2: about this, and you convinced me of it, that this was all his ruse for the defection.
1: Yep. Everything he does. Because... He's okay with uh the new location for the movie. Uh Goebbels' uh new uh war propaganda epic. film epic with uh uh Zoller Friedrich as his Zoller. Friedrich Zola as his um, as his uh new German superstar who is going to change the face of the third Reich, give it some youthful energy. And he was like, yeah, sure. I can do that. <laughs> and you know, he knows it. Hans London knows it. And I will, I will go to the grave. That That is a hill that I will see from a distance and go, that's a hill. Well, you know, I I I was convinced of what you of what you
2: are arguing. The one thing that you and I were not able to really resolve was the plot hole. And the plot hole is if uh, don't roll your eyes at me. The plot hole is if in fact he knows who she is, and if in fact these are all his ministrations to have you know the um, top figures of the Third Reich taken down. Why did he strangle with his bare hands Frau von Hammerschmack when he found out that in fact she might be on his side trying to topple the the whole thing? Why would he why would he strangle her and you and I didn't come to sort of terms on this? Appearances. Appearances. It can't be appearances because he left her dead in the office and nobody knew
1: that she was dead in there. How can this be appearances? Oh, they had to know. When oh, the it. when the three when the three bastards were ready to go, when the three bastards were, you know, going to go find their seats and whatnot. Oh, frau von Hammerschmack, can you come to my office, please? Like they knew. Zero zero <laughs> Those These guys were so bad. They were hilarious, though. Uh, Margariti <laughs> Margariti <laughs> I'm trying to say his name in Italian. Uh, no,
2: listen, I, I, I buy your argument that this was this that he knew who she was and that this was his ministrations. I don't buy your argument that we just don't have a raging plot hole. And why would he kill von Hammersmark? But we can move past it.
1: Yeah, I, w- I, I'm friends. Come to my aid here. Convince Jason even further. Please, you even call him cold, calculating, uh, sociopathic. I mean, that's what a sociopath would do. A sociopath is also interested
2: in their own um, agendas. A sociopath does whatever they need to do to get theirs. Yeah. And in this particular case, what he needs to do is allow the bastards to detonate the bomb. So you're Aldo the Apache. You're the Jew hunter. I'm a detective,
3: a damn good detective. Finding people is my specialty, so naturally I worked for the Nazis finding people, and yes, some of them were Jews, but Jew hunter? (laughs) Just a name that stuck. Well, you do have to admit, it is catchy. Do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the little man? What do you mean, the little man? German's nickname for you. The German's nickname for me is The Little Man. And as if to make my point, I'm a little surprised how tall you were in real life when you are a little fellow, but not circus midget little, as your reputation would suggest.
0: Where's my man? Where's Bridget von Hammersmark?
3: Well, let's just say she got what she deserved. And when you purchase friends like Bridget von Hammersmark, you get what you pay for. Now, as far as your paisanos, Sergeant Donowitz and Private Omar... How do you know our names? Lieutenant Arnold, if you don't think I wouldn't interrogate every single one of your swastika-marked survivors... We simply aren't operating on the level of mutual respect, I assume. No, I guess not. Well, back to the whereabouts of your two Italian saboteurs... As of this moment, both Omar and Donowitz should be sitting in the very seats we left them in, 0023 and 0024, if my memory serves. Explosives still around their ankle, still ready to explode, and your mission, some would call a terrorist plot, as of this moment, is still a go. That's a
0: pretty exciting story. What's next? Lies
3: on ice? However... All I have to do is pick up this phone right here, inform the cinema, and your plan's kaput.
0: If they're still here, and if they're still alive, and that's one big if, there ain't no way you're gonna take in boys out setting off them bombs.
3: I have no doubt. And yes, some Germans will die, and yes, it will ruin the evening, and yes, Goebbels will be very, very, very mad at you for what you've done to his big night. But you won't get Hitler, you won't get Goebbels, you won't get Göring, and you won't get Bormann. And you need all four to end the war. But if I don't pick up this phone right here, you may very well get all four. And if you get all four, you end the war tonight. So, gentlemen, let's discuss the prospect of ending the war tonight. So, the way I see it, since Hitler's death, or possible rescue, rests solely on my reaction, if I do nothing, it's as if I'm causing his death even more than yourselves. Wouldn't you agree? I guess so. How about you, Jutovic? I guess so, too. Gentlemen, I have no intention of killing Hitler and killing Goebbels and killing Goering and killing Bormann, not to mention winning the war single-handedly for the Allies, only later to find myself standing before a Jewish tribunal. If you want to win the war tonight, we have to make a deal.
0: What kind of deal?
3: The kind you wouldn't have the authority to make. However, I'm sure this mission of yours has a commanding officer. A general. Mm, I'm betting for... OSS would be my guess. Ooh, that's a bingo! <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a
1: bingo? You just say bingo.
3: Bingo! How fun!
1: Okay, now that we haven't convinced Jason, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back talking more Inglorious Bastards with Jason Spigwin. Stay tuned.
0: Hey, friends.
1: Astrid here. You may know me from such films as Crazy Rich Asians, White Oleander, or How to Train Your Dragon. Wait, what what was that? I wasn't in those. I wasn't in those. Okay, that wasn't me. Ooh,
3: okay, well. Astrid here. You may know me as the other half of your favorite podcast host, Dr. Alex Swan, and I'm here to shout out listeners like
1: you. Thanks for supporting the pod. Whether that's buying merch, sharing episodes on social media, or making donations. You can visit cinemasypepod.swansype.com to get your hands on previous episodes, or if you're like me, just
0: another hoodie because we live in the Midwest.
1: We appreciate you. Now, back
3: to
0: the show.
1: We are back with Jason Spiegelman talking about *Inglorious Bastards*, 2009 Quentin Tarantino movie. Brad Pitt, lots of other people. You probably have seen it, and if you haven't, what are you doing with your life? The next scene that I think takes uh, uh is going to take some chunk of time to to digest here. To take apart the bear Jew scene where the bastards. But you know what? You know what? Jason set the scene for the listener. I'm calling the bear Jew. So there is
2: a scene when the bastards led by Aldo rain, our Brad Pitt's character have cornered three Nazi soldiers in the woods. And what we're led to believe is that one of these soldiers is an officer And the other two are enlisted men. And Brad Pitt is interrogating the officer. His name is Werner, right? And he wants Werner, Werner, he wants Werner to share with him on the map that he lays in front of him. He says, now, right up the road a piece, there's a field. And in that field, we know there's some some German soldiers and we know there's some artillery. We know there's some positions there. And I want you to point on this map and I want you to tell me how many where they are and what kind of what kind of weapons they're bringing to the to the party the troop counts the armaments and so on and werner looks up at him and he says you can't expect me in this wonderfully affected german accent you can't expect me to reveal information that would put germans lives in danger and then brad pitt says well now werner that's where you're wrong that's exactly what i want you to do and then he throws a bunch of you know german epithets that i'm not going to repeat in there and he says you, you put your finger on the map and you tell me warner looks up and says i respectfully refuse and brad pitt now starts listening to this sort of knocking this tapping that's coming from off camera
0: donnie yeah gosh german here wants to adopt the country oblige him <laughs>
2: And we see the camera go to this, um, it's almost like a zoo, like a bear enclosure, right? Yeah. And we see down this dark tunnel and we hear this tap, tap, tapping coming out of the dark tunnel. And Brad Pitt's character, Aldo Rain, tells us that, do you hear that? That's the bear Jew. You know who the bear Jew is? And Werner says, everybody knows who the bear Jew is. And he says, if you don't tell me what I want to know, I'm going to call the bear Jew. And the bear Jew is going to come out here and he's going to beat you in the head with a baseball bat. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. So he says, point to that map and tell me what you want. Tell me what I want to know. Or I'm going to call the bear Jew. And Werner looks up at him and let's just say he politely declines. (laughs) And from there, we call Donnie Donowitz. We call out the bear Jew.
1: All righty. Now, Jason wrote some notes here. He said at the, at the beginning, the intro, that a lot of this movie stuck with him. And I want to quote you, dear listener, on what he wrote in his remembrance of this scene. How he felt when he first saw this that long ago. In the movie theater. In the movie theater. And I quote... I know that when I was in the movie theater, I was smiling, and on the verge of cheering, every thwack of the bat made me just a little happier. There were others in the theater actively screaming and cheering in delight as this terribly violent scene took place. Wow, Jason. It's, it's, wow.
2: it's accurate. He calls um, out the bear Jew, the bear Jew gives Werner a chance. Werner cusses him out and he goes, yad, Teddy ball game goes yad. And he nearly decapitates him with a Louisville slugger. Yep. And you know, you, you feel this, I don't know if you felt that, Alex, you feel thrilled. You feel oh, ecstatic yeah. that he just beat this man's brains in with a baseball bat. Yeah.
1: What the hell? Well, you know, it was a violent scene. And of course, uh, as many a Freudian will tell you, just kidding. um, (laughs) As 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 somebody who doesn't uh, appreciate um, doing violence in real life, sometimes it's enjoyable to watch, of course. But it's also especially enjoyable when it's a Nazi. Do we
2: believe in the rule of law? Do we believe in democracy? Do We like to spout off, right, innocent until proven guilty, but do we really believe it? Or does innocent until proven guilty really only apply to some but not other people? Mm-hmm. Um, was my reaction so strong because I'm Jewish? I don't think so because literally everybody I've ever spoken with who has seen this scene has said the same thing. Yeah. I friggin loved it, right? Um what do we do with the cognitive dissonance that comes from believing that the nazi guards should not execute helpless people and yet a man kneeling there helpless it's okay to execute him because of you know what we know he's done um And, you know, the way that I describe this and Alex, you're just going to roll your eyes at me. What sort of Kohlbergian nightmare have we entered into? What circle of Kohlbergian hell have we descended to where we're trying to figure out what is and what is not moral and ethical here?
1: Right. Um, I don't think I have a good answer other than, you know, he was a Nazi and we've been uh, since the existence of Nazis, any good moral person has looked at that and said nah that's not something i want to do um and and many in 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 more heavier terms than that so i wonder if it's just our collective socialization i find it potentially hard to believe that somebody in the proud boys or a neo nazi would feel the same glee that you and I felt at this scene. And so that is my only answer to you on this, is that our collective socialization that Nazism is bad and what Nazis did during World War II and before was not at all good or moral or right. And so we're just like, yeah, that's, that's great. You see it, you see, and we look at this in 2009, right? This is 70 plus years after the Holocaust. And so we are looking at it with generations removed eyes. You and I, of course, is what I'm talking about. Obviously, there are still Holocaust survivors with us today. But you and I, as generations removed from the Holocaust, we are looking at this from a very historical point of view. I don't know if we would have felt the same glee if it was not a Nazi. There is a sort of ongoing
2: and oft cited ethical and philosophical conundrum when people talk about the the the, the horrors of the Holocaust, right. and you know, people often say, "Wouldn't it have been great if?" Hitler had never been born wouldn't it have been great if somebody had taken out Adolf Hitler wouldn't it have been great if if this never happened and of course the answer is yes it would have been great if this had never happened but the ethical <laughs> hey. conundrum that people law often ask is if you could go back in time and you could pull the trigger to kill the führer would would you do it and oh that's time travel
1: you, rule number 1 baby
2: time travel rule number 1 but you know it it really You would expect people to say absolutely, and from the reading that I've done about this, a lot of people say I would want it done, but I wouldn't want to be the one to do it. So then when we watch this person, we're living vicariously through the bad of the bear Jew, and it's just a little bit of, I don't know, satisfaction for something that I think most people would probably not be able to make themselves do. certainly not that violently. Would it have been different if he just pulled a trigger and blew his head off, and that was it? I don't think so. I think the satisfaction comes from the primitive horrendousness exacted upon this person who probably exacted primitive horrendousness. On oh, others. yeah.
1: A hundred percent literal eye for literal eye in this case. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You did these terrible things to my brothers um, in Judaism. Guess what? I'm going to do the same thing to you. And, and then it takes. And that's why they, the bastards themselves adopted such harsh um, tactics, right? The the skinning or uh, 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 scalping, scalping, excuse me, yeah. the scalping yeah. of, of them and the fact that uh, out of a group of like, what, 10 guys in the bastards, they owed him each 100 Nazi scalps. Nazi scalps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely.
2: But then again, we we also are left with you know going back to the idea of closure and you know what would have happened. So here's a question, right? And it's a Tarantinoan kind of question. We don't know if Le Padit and his daughter survived. So if Warner had given the information, would the bastards have let him live and just carved up his forehead? Well,
1: that's what they did for Private Boots. So who knows? Right, and but. Here's the thing that I think they, the bastards were doing in, in universe. The thing that the bastards were doing is so they were always letting one or two people survive. Right. And they were always um, carving with knives swastikas in their foreheads so they could never take off the uniform. Um, they were always letting because that's how you grow reputations, right? That's right, you, how you, you everyone... You create the nightmare. Right. You create the legend that haunts you. And the guy who plays Hitler in this movie shows you that on his face. Yeah, the the the, the horrendousness of his
2: response to seeing this carved scar in the man's forehead. But remember, Werner, right, was an officer. Right. Would he have let an officer go versus an enlisted man, a, a private, who perhaps had not had an opportunity to have the history of horror and so on and so forth? So, you know. Who knows? Another little bit of sort of potential unresolved plot twist.
1: Plot plot twist.
2: <laughs> I started to say plot hole, but it's not a hole. It's they killed him. If they hadn't killed him and he had pointed to the map, what would have happened? I, I don't know.
0: Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking to Kings. By all means, Captain. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Seeing as I may be rapping on the door momentarily. I must say, damn good stuff, sir. Now, about this pickle we find ourselves in would appear there's only one thing left you to do. And what would that be? Sticklets. See how feeders into your Nazi box.
1: The last scene that I want to talk—well, maybe not the last scene, but the second-to-last scene, at the very least—that I want to talk to you about is the bar scene, which is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, and it, it is definitely Tarantino-esque. It subverts expectations. You think, oh, okay, they are going to get out of this. Pretty relatively unscathed. Obviously, on second and third viewings, you know what's gonna happen. So you can look at the scene a lot differently and you can explore how Tarantino just chess pieces everything into position. Wonderfully done. Uh so the scene, folks, is a meetup between um Frau von Hammerschmark, who is defecting and is spying for the Americans or the British. And a young lieutenant uh, in the British Army is sent to rendezvous with both the bastards and her to get them to this film premiere in Paris. La Lusienne. La Lusienne. They knew that um that Goebbels was going to be there. A lot of high-ranking Germans were going to be there. Von Hammerschmark, uh, on the other hand, knew at the very last minute that Hitler, too, was going to be there. So they had to rendezvous at this bar, uh, Jason called it. I'm not even going to attempt to, to say it again. Um, and um, pose as German officers meeting her as old-time friends. Well, unfortunately, one German enlisted soldier had to go and have a baby, and he is celebrating with his um troop mates in this bar with von hammersmark and like nobody questions that she's there, and they're playing the uh, a game of um what's it called
2: I don't know what it's called. You stick a card to your forehead and then people give you hints
1: and you have to guess what's written on the card.
2: Yeah. It's heads up without iPads.
1: And then the three Bastards, I'll just say that uh Archie Hickox is um part of the bastards at this moment. He's he's Michael Fassbender. Um, and they meet Van Hammersmark and he they're they're like, I thought you said there weren't any gonna be any Germans here. And she said, Oops, <laughs> oops. But here's my thing. This is where movies lose me sometimes. I'm going to go on a mini rant. I need to get a, like a, a bumper here where Alex goes on movie rant. Mini movie rant here. She could have, Von Hammersmark I mean, she could have ended this whole thing much, much earlier and told that German officer who ends up joining the bastards at their table Major Hellstrom. Major Hellstrom. Exactly. She could have told him to leave, but she goes, no, oh, no, no. He can stay. But seriously, she sabotaged it. Oh my god! And I don't think she sabotaged it intentionally. She almost died, of course. But dude, <laughs> dude. She, or I mean, her uh, ultimate death, uh, being strangled by Landa by Hans Landa, really was a long time coming. Like she dodged death's bullet, literally, in the bar uh, shootout. But she, her, she sealed her fate when she was like, "Oh no, 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 Major Hellstrom, join, join us." She had the intel they needed. Hitler was going to be there. And, of course, she just decided, no, I have to be an actress first. Spy second. It was, it was, it was so dumb. Anyways, I know what it has to happen in the movie. I know it has to happen that way in the movie. But it, it just bothers me from a um, narrative standpoint. I mean, most movies, Jason, you know this. Most movies, most TV shows would be five minutes long if people would be like, oh, you made a mistake? Cool, let's talk about it. (laughs) Or they don't walk out the door when somebody's like, let me explain. Okay. Or they hear a noise
2: in the backyard at night and they go out to investigate, and you're all screaming, don't go out there. Well, there would be no horror movies if people didn't go out there.
1: Yeah, I know. It has to be Suspension of disbelief, my friend. Suspension of disbelief. Sometimes... I just get pulled right back into it, you know. Just, just, ha- con- just have conversations, people. Just, just, just converse with one another, please. That's all I'm asking. She delays the telling of the intel, which allows this frickin' major to figure out he had his suspicions. To figure out that Hickox wasn't German from the tiny little village of um, Pitzuppulau or whatever it was, at the base... Pitzpaloo. Palu at the base of the Alps, or whatever it was, Bavarian Alps. Um, that's why his accent was so weird. And then, um, of course, we lose two of the best bastards, by the way. Two of the best bastards. Uh, they don't have a German speaker now, except for von Hammerschmark. Um, she's pretty much useless at this point. She ends up getting shot in the leg like an idiot. But this scene is so good. You know why it's so good? Because it plays out one moment after one moment. You are on the edge of your seat this entire scene. I give the scene its crap, but it is so well shot. Every second is like, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? You have overwhelming dread. From moment to moment, overwhelming dread that something really, really bad is going to happen. Because, you know, it's a Tarantino movie. You know a nobody. Most people in his movies die. You grow to love them, and they get snatched from you in his movies. You're like, oh, I love that character. Why? Like, we're looking at... why did you have to take Wiki from us? Why did you have to take Stiglitz from us? Yeah, like come on, man. I liked Hickox. I like Michael Fassbender, and 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 you get Magneto, you, man. Come on, you get them snatched away, and you're like, right? oh man. But overwhelming dread from moment to moment, and what ultimately, <laughs> what ultimately gets uh, the bastards done in in this scene, unfortunately which ends in a shootout is um, the way that Michael Fassbender tells the, the French bartender, bartender, bar owner, the, how many glasses, how many glasses did he wants? And now listener, I don't know about you, but when I say three, I usually put my three fingers up, right? Index, middle, and ring. And that's apparently a Britishism. Because the folks in in Germany at the time would do the American Sign Language way, which is to use your two fingers and thumbs to point out you want three of something. I don't know why. I don't know why. I know why it is in American Sign Language, differentiating three from W. But I don't know why that would be weird in Germany. And so if you have any German history, because they don't explain it very much, they just say that would just look weird to a German. And I'm just like sitting here like, why? Why is a representation of three weird in a particular way? Like, I don't, here's the thing. I know in, having done ASL, having done ASL, I know why if you did, if you, if a, say a person, Uh, A a hearing person learns ASL, but is talking with somebody and uses three and it's interpreted as a W. I doubt it actually would get interpreted as a W. I would. I'm pretty sure it would get interpreted as a three, even though it seems weird. Uh, An example of how this might
2: relate comes from another movie. I'll I'll spare you the name of it because it was such a bad movie. But if someone said to you, it's really raining dogs and cats outside you'd think to yourself, you're not from here, are you? Because we don't say that, right? There's nothing particularly wrong with inverting dogs and cats and cats and dogs, but it's simply a a, a, a tell that someone is not from that particular region, and
1: there it is. I totally get it. It just, it, it seems like, it seems to me that Tarantino sort of lost what would be the tell. Cause he does a he does a misdirect with the accent. So this guy's got an ear for uh this guy's got an dialect for regional accents and dialects. And it's like he's he he says that um Siglitz is from Frankfurt and um Wiki is from Munich. From Munich. Munich. Yeah. Um and
2: you stumban ich weiß nicht you uh s- lieutenant I don't know, Captain right Captain I don't know yes yeah.
1: yeah and it's it's strange because I don't know if many Americans can do that on their own for American dialects unless like it's we're talking about major ones maybe Frankfurt and Munich and other places are major and I'm just like sort of looking at it through an ethros- eth- ethnocentric um viewpoint maybe. Well, again, suspension of disbelief. We just have to
2: let it roll off our backs. What's What's really interesting here, however, if we're going to bring this back, you know, if we're going to attempt to bring this back to psychology, is the moment at which all five of them, I would argue, the three bastards, Von Hammersmark and Major Hellstrom, certainly four of them if we exclude the actor, right? They all know we're all going to die here. Yeah, there is no way any of us are getting out of here. Forget the, you know, the soldiers at the other table. Forget the 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 newborn baby's father who is now going to orphan his kid. We all know we're not getting out of here and there's no way to talk our way out of this. So let's just start shooting because that's how this is going to end up. Wow. <laughs> In that moment, he says, you know what? Say goodbye to your Nazi body parts and pulls the trigger. And that's the end of that.
1: Yeah. And then everybody pulls triggers. <sighs> I don't get how uh, well the uh the bar t- the bartender <laughs> the bartender has a shotgun that makes a lot of sense but you know the other guys were drunk I don't get it man I don't well, get it Well just
2: remember there's a special rung of hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. That was a great line.
1: Yeah. There is a special Since I'm going to be
2: knocking on the door momentarily, I hope you don't mind if I do. And then Hellstrom speaks English and he says by all means, captain. And that's just the beautiful end of the scene coming up right there
1: it is and the scene is entirely well i shouldn't say entirely in german um there are a few there's a few french bits in there because uh this is a french bar of course in nazi nazi occupied northern france north of north of paris so but they're all speaking german um having fun speaking german and uh everyone's having a having a really good time And then, you know, right up until bang, bang, bang. Now that I think about it, it's all Hickox's fault. It's all Fassie's fault. Because he started yelling at the uh, enlisted man who just had a baby. Like, leave us alone. Well, he invited the major to come over. Imagine the major would have not come over. But it was also I don't remember
2: if it was Wiki or if it was Stiglitz who yelled at private Wilhelm's compatriots to say, come over and get your drunk, boorish friend away from us right
1: now. So, you know, there's let's there's some blame. There's some blame to go around. Stiglitz was um, an instigator as well. That's true. Uh, His quiet rage, as you put it, um, seethed over the top. Because that was the first time in the movie we see that happen. And that's because he's being surrounded by Germans that he can't kill. Yeah. Uh he's not allowed he's not allowed to do what he has has destined for himself to do, which is kill as many Nazis as possible. Even and he though, has to
2: sit there wearing that Nazi uniform. Yes, pretending to be one of them.
1: Specifically an SS. Yes. Nazi uniform, right? Yes. Yes. So he is he is seething, and 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 every so often, Tarantino will cut to him, and just just hating the pure smugness of this major, and wanting so badly to do all the things very harmful to him. I wonder if Stiglitz could have have could have killed him, um, surreptitiously. Certainly could have shot him in the head
2: before and then started, you know, firing bullets at everybody else. But, you know, it, it, we you and I spoke a little bit about some of the characters. Stieglitz is a is is a really interesting character. I, I would argue that after Landa, Stieglitz is probably the most interesting character in the movie, or at least to me, um, in terms of, you know, you use you use the word seething rage, um, but extraordinarily well controlled. And this instinctive hatred, this vindictiveness almost at a primitive kind of level. And, you know, like you and I were talking about, Stieglitz's character reminds me of um, a scene from The Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. where the Hannibal Lecter character, who is, you know, almost an animal in, in his own right, is described as having attacked a fellow inmate. And uh, if I remember correctly, ate him. Um, and yeah. his was his blood pressure or his pulse never went above baseline? And we see this so often in this movie with Stieglitz. We see him stabbing a, a, a Nazi high-ranking officer through a pillow um, with almost a look of calm on his face. When he is broken out of his cell by the bastards and they're shooting guards and they're running all over the place and blood is flying everywhere, he never even looks up from his cigarette in his jail cell. And Aldo Rain says to him, you know, your repu- your reputation as a Nazi killer is amateur. Do you want to go pro? And he just sort of nods and smiles. And um he's so well controlled until he has to be in the presence of this guy, and it is just oozing out of him. The fact that he held on for that long is is really kind of impressive, given the nature of that character.
1: Yeah. And so when he knew the writing was on the wall in this bar scene he just shot his shot right into the crotch of a German Nazi. Which is, you know, fitting for his demise. He died doing what he loved to do apparently. So Well,
2: you know, there's 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 no question in any of the bastards' minds that they're going to die doing this. Yeah. So That's okay. I mean, I think, you know, for for God and for country, we will do this thing. We will do this thing.
0: Are you familiar with German cinema under the Third Reich? Yes. Obviously, I haven't seen any of the films made in the last three years, but I'm familiar with it. Explain it to me. Pardon, sir? Well, this little escapade of ours requires a knowledge of the German film industry under the Third Reich. Explain to me, Ufa... Under Goebbels, Goebbels considers the films he's making to be the beginning of a new era in German cinema, an alternative to what he considers the Jewish German intellectual cinema of the twenties, and the Jewish-controlled dogma of Hollywood. How's he doing? Rightfully so, is that? Once again, you say he wants to take on the Jews, at their own game. Well, compared to say. Louis B. Mayer. How's he doing? Quite well, actually. Since Goebbels has taken over, film attendance has steadily risen in Germany over the last eight years. But Louis B. Mayer wouldn't be Goebbels' proper opposite number. I believe Goebbels sees himself closer to David O. Selsnake.
1: Breathe him. All right, Jason, I want to end with a just a brief chat about the portrayal of Nazis in this movie. Uh, We talked about Werner. We talked about Hans Landa. But those are two fictional characters that created for this movie. There are two real-life people portrayed in this movie. We have Josef Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. And you had some interesting thoughts about um the ways in which Tarantino portrayed them.
2: Tarantino knows that anybody with a moral center watching this movie is going to be sickened by the portrayals of Josef Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. And so he takes a tact that is almost straight out of, you know, Mel Brooks the producers. Mm. And he spoofifies them and he cartoonifies them and he creates this um, uh, if you'll forgive me, this effeminized caricature, particularly of Goebbels, um, as he as he sits in the restaurant when he shakes hands, he does it with the the wrist elevated. He's not going to shake his hand. He's going to let you kiss it like the Pope. And we see Hitler when he's discussing with Private Butz his interaction with the bastards. He's having this this ridiculous portrait drawn of holding this cape in front of him in an almost napoleonic kind of mockery and in in thinking about this i just remember the springtime for hitler scene in the producers and calling him adolf elizabeth hitler and just mocking the crap out of him i think that this is a Tarantino-esque way of letting the audience sort of, I don't want to use the word relate to, but maybe accept these characters as part of the plot and just for even a moment forget who they really are in history. It was a brilliant portrayal in a way that lets you hate but also laugh at these characters.
1: Yeah, and I think purposefully laughing at their uh, exaggerations – as well, right? So um, Goebbels is so uh, up his own butt um, about what he's doing for the Third Reich and his job as propaganda minister, and he sees himself as this glorious film producer. This is Hickok's comparing Goebbels to um, uh, a masterful film producer, but really only explains that he sees himself goebbels sees himself as selznick but not actually being a selznick but when michael myers's character asks
2: or was it churchill who asks how's he doing and then hickok says quite well sir he's 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 what was it doubled or tripled? Cinema attendance—I don't remember the exact. Yeah,
1: number. He, um, d-
2: but he comments that he's actually doing quite a good job at being David O. Selznick.
1: He is, but um, and and it, that's that's historical. Goebbels yes. was instrumental in getting uh the war effort in Germany quite a bit of boost, right? So as opposed mm-hmm. to war weariness, everyone was down for it because of these films. I think that's a historical take. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's how Tarantino portrays him. Well, I mean, Tarantino, (laughs) I hate to bring
2: this up, but Tarantino just wants us to laugh at him. He's got his German to French interpreter played by Julia Dreyfus, who, by the way, Shoshana Dreyfus's character is named after Julia Dreyfus, right? And then in a maybe one and a half second cut during the restaurant scene with Shoshana, we... We see this brief interaction of Goebbels having a romantic interlude with Dreyfus, and he is making these ridiculous, almost monkey-esque noises while having sex with her, and I'm not going to try to repeat them here, but we're meant to just laugh our asses off at this person who we're supposed to hate, and that's exactly what happened in the producers as well.
1: And uh, I'll just briefly say that the first um, the first words that we hear Hitler say in the movie are a series of, of no's, obviously. Nine,
2: nine, nine, nine.
1: <laughs> but somebody who is so exasperated in 1944 about the walls closing in that just any little thing sets him off. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, perhaps one of my f- uh, favorite portrayals of Hitler behind um, what they did to uh, the f- fictitious character in springtime for Hitler. So I think we did a pretty good job of encapsulating uh, some of the nuance in this movie, some of the uh, psychological themes that this movie has for it. Any last words, Jason? One of the things that I think
2: is is sort of to bring us back to the beginning, we talked about um when Lepadit and Landa during the interrogation at the dairy farm changed their language so that the Dreyfuses would not understand what was being said to them. This analysis did not come from me. I picked this up in some of my research. Near the end of the movie, when Shoshana after she has been shot, but she's pre-made this movie to switch the viewing so that she tells everybody in the theater you're about to die i'm about to kill you my vengeance is nigh she does that on the screen in was it was it english yeah and there was no reason to believe that hitler spoke english and so in sort of a turnabout, she's speaking to him right before he is to be killed in a language that he cannot understand in exactly the way that Landa did to the Dreyfuses right before they were to be killed. So I thought that that was really interesting. I never, never picked up on that. But in my research for our conversations, and I thought that was really, really interesting. And now I
1: want to go back and watch the whole movie yet again. Uh, so historically, was Hitler not um, known to speak English? If he spoke any English at all, it would
2: have been, you know, a few words at best. OK.
1: OK. So it's not just how he was portrayed in the movie, but historically he was um, anti-English. anti OK. Well, remember, he believed in the
2: master race. Right. Right. And the master and race that spoke was German. Germans, yeah. Right. Um, let me just see. It says, uh, just in a brief Google search, which I tell my students not to do all the time, that Hitler spoke no language other than German. So, if that quick hit is correct, then that supports this idea that Shoshana has come full circle and has turned it right back around on
1: on Hitler. Yeah. Too bad it wasn't Landa. You know. Too bad. She right. Exact her revenge. It. She probably had that in her mind. Right. Um. Thinking but Landa that Landa was onto he, it. He, thinking that. He would be in there, but he purposefully never went into the theater. He 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 knew what was going to happen. He one hundred percent was never going to go in there, and he kind of got an idea of von Hammersmark um and the bastards being there. Like, why are these people here? And Margarete, Margarete, <laughs> <laughs> these two bastards who could not. Could not speak any Italian. That's so, and good. then you
2: have Brad Pitt just just calmly say "Buongiorno." Yes. <laughs> so while you're watching the movie, you're wondering why is why is he letting them in? And now you think to yourself, well, there was a method to the madness, of course. So. Yeah, Buongiorno, Buongiorno.
1: <laughs> Sounds like he's going to be making a pizza restaurant called DiGiorno, right? That's DiGiorno, yeah. right? Oh God, DiGiorno well that's gonna do it for this episode i want to thank jason for joining me to discuss inglorious bastards while saying goodbye jason is there anything that you'd like to plug
2: no i don't have a whole lot coming up listen if you are in our part of the country in march in boston this year in march of 2023 we will be having our conference of the uh, eastern psychological association for which i serve as the teaching chair and it has had a really really nice um turnout for the teaching programming i'd love to have some of you participate and hey it's boston it's a new hotel that we haven't been at before so please come um, in October the mid- October of this year, the Mid-Atlantic Teaching of Psychology Conference, May Top, um, for which I uh, am pleased to serve on the organizing committee, will be held virtually this year. So um, if you need information about that, please reach out to me. And other than that, I wish you all a wonderful fall semester as we are hoping to move past the pandemic. May monkeypox never hit too hard and let's all look forward to getting back to life as it was just a few years ago
1: uh i don't think that's happening but no i don't either (laughs) (laughs) all right jason well it was good to have you on again until the next episode thanks for listening